Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I like that, be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Here in the studio with me today, as always, is Ravinder. So, you know, pretty lady, say hello to everyone. Share your insight for the day, and please tell everyone how they can learn more about our show. Well, hello, everyone. So glad that you could join us again today and join me in being uncertain for this part of the hour, because I'm always uncertain, but that's a good thing. Um, To learn more about the show, you know, we have the website that has all of our archives up there we've been on the air for what 11 years now something like that um yeah so just go to provocativeenlightenment.com and then we also have our facebook page so you can just do a search for provocative enlightenment radio any information that gives out that is that our guest gives out on the air, I will try to get posted up there. So if there's any orals or any other special information, uh, you can always go check it out there. All right. In this week's spotlight, I wish to discuss psychographics. For a long time, sellers of wares and ideas have relied on demographics for their targeted marketing efforts. Demographics reveal the statistical data of a population, especially those showing average age, income, education, and so forth. So if the target audience is female between the ages of 20 and 40, it is demographics that identify where to go with advertising dollars, whether the ad is designed to peddle a product, an idea, or win a vote. Now, By way of further identification, we add this science called psychographics. Psychographics uses demographic information to determine the attitudes and tastes of a particular segment of a population. Essentially, psychographics seeks to discover the so-called five big traits, referred to in the acronym OCEAN. Those five are openness, conscientiousness, extroversion-introversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Breaking each of the five down, we can understand why they're important to those who wish to convince us of our likes, desires, and needs. Openness refers to one's desire for new experience, as well as providing a measure of creativity. Conscientiousness is the measure of care taken in life. Extroversion-introversion is the assessment of sociability. Are you comfortable in crowds or do you prefer to be in smaller groups and or alone? Agreeableness evaluates the dimension of kindness and caring. Are you empathetic and do you sympathize with others? And finally, 
Neuroticism considers how you handle emotion. Are you stable or do you yell at others when upset? How do you react in stressful situations? Okay, now gather this information from the demographic you seek most to exploit. And you theoretically have everything you need to know in order to persuade them. And that is exactly what Cambridge Analytics did for President Trump's campaign in the last presidential election. Indeed, in the words of Professor Jonathan Albright, quote, this is a propaganda machine. It's targeting people individually to recruit them to an idea. It's a level of social engineering that I've never seen before. They're capturing people and then keeping them on an emotional leash and never letting them go, close quote. In my book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will, I dedicated a chapter to exactly this sort of metadata engineering. And the devices are not only becoming more sophisticated every day, but also much more widely deployed by everyone. The strategy behind social engineering, or the engineering of consent, as Edward Bernays titled it in his essay in 1947, remains that of control of the masses. But the tactics are ever-evolving. You should know this and remember today's spotlight. The next time you answer some silly quiz, the kind ostensibly designed to inform you of what Hollywood figure you're most like, or what animal you are, or what characteristic is your strongest based on your moon sign, and so forth. You are providing information that can, and undoubtedly, in some way, will be used to win your consent at some point in the near future. Remember, the ultimate goal is to get you to do what they want you to do because you think it's both your idea and a good one at that. Those are my thoughts. What are yours? How about you, Ravinder? What do you think? Propaganda, indeed. It's, uh, I think it's hot. It, I think it's hard. It's impossible to escape these days. Um, but I am seeing more and more people coming out of social media. Um, you know, there was a time when all of my friends and family were using Facebook, and now most of them don't. Um, I use Facebook a little bit, but I can go great periods of time without doing it, and I certainly don't do those quizzes and games that they have you know they always look so cute but it's like I don't do those anymore I don't know what to think of it to answer your question um, I find it all a bit depressing actually it's becoming harder and harder to be authentic to discover who you actually are to have original ideas and lots of people don't want original ideas because they want to go along with the crowd and that's part of our biology psychology anyway so i'm sorry i'm sounding very depressed about it but it's like what do you do about it well it's more than just facebook i mean when you say they're coming out of facebook the data is collected in in all forms in all ways it, it can be a questionnaire from a bank a political party it can be something that you know the kinds of photos etc that you're 
sharing in some Snapchat. Uh, all of that is information. It's all data that is going into a, a data bank, data banks, plural. Um, and that information is used to decide what ads to present to you in any form of media that you you utilize, but particularly Internet today. So I, I think, you know, I had this conversation with a, a young man the other day and uh, not that it's relevant. This this young man happened to be uh, very conservative, and then he went to a, a very liberal school, and all, all of his viewpoints changed. And, and I said to him, you know, if you're in a five-foot swimming pool with only fish that swim, pretty quick you start swimming as opposed to stand up all alone and if you think about it we get herded into groups now it could be just the opposite maybe it could have been a liberal who went to a conservative school so i'm not championing one over the other i'm only saying that we we like to be accepted by the herd we are herd animals and so we are very easily influenced by those people that we have chosen to be around. And in some of these these social media uh, places, we're herded into these groups. We're not actually choosing it. It's being chosen for us. Those are my thoughts. Anything you want to add? No, it just goes on and on. The fact is it's, this has all, always happened, but their ability to collate the data and use the data and push you push us all, you know, into these little boxes is just incredible today. But it's all media, remember. Yep. It, it includes your television and, yeah. and, you know, the news outlets that you choose because they aim also at that emotional lease hanging you there. I mean, it's, it's all about fear pandering today. It's, uh, but even if you turn everything off, you still get influenced by it because every person you talk to has been influenced by it. And so they talk about their views and opinions that have been foisted on. It's just I like something you said the other day. What was it? Uh, in countries like China and Russia, they control, the government controls the media. But maybe the media here is controlling the government. I think they are. At least they're I controlling the voters. I ab they absolutely <laughs> think they are. They're, yeah. um, you know, they're the ones who choose what information to put in front of you, and then you have to make your choices out of that. It's your book, Choices and Illusions, just uh, expanded, blowing up. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Professor Greg Hammer, M.D., and we discussed his work and book, Gain. I, you know, I'm going to tell you once again, all of you out there, this is a great book. Go get the book. Um, I, I can't encourage you too much, especially during this COVID period. Um, to go get this book because it, it literally will help immunize you from some of the stress and turmoil that's so rampant in our world today with, yeah, well enough said. Anyway, Tammy wrote, 
I loved your show with Dr. Hammer. I am using his three best things that happened to me today. I did daily now. So am I, Tammy. Elizabeth wrote, I love Dr. Hammer's game program. Thank you for having him on the show. Moving on, Thomas wrote, I love your show. I really missed the live broadcast during the period you were working on new books. I'm glad you're back. Joanne wrote, I have your InterTalk program, Healing from Invalidation, and it's amazing how it helped me shift my perspective from of myself. I like the nature CDs and put them on repeat to listen all night while sleeping. Thank you, Eldon and Ravinder. I have so many of your CDs. You have truly helped change my life. What do you think of that, Raph? Thoughts on that one? Oh, I like that, but my own personal library is huge too, so... <laughs> All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but please keep your comments coming. We do sincerely appreciate your feedback. You can opine by sending me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. Now to today's show, The Meritocracy Trap with Professor Daniel Markovitz. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Daniel Markovitz is the Guido Calabresi Professor of Law at Yale Law School and founding director of the Center for the Study of Private Law. Markovitz writes widely in a range of disciplines and is published in Science, the American Economic Review, and the Yale Law Journal. He is the author of The Meritocracy Trap, How America's Foundational Myth Feeds Inequality, Dismantles the Middle Class, and devours the elite. His book considers the law, economics, and politics of human capital to identify the mechanisms through which meritocracy breeds inequality. It's a scary read. It's a great read. It's one we should all pay some attention to. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Daniel Markovitz. Hi, thanks so much for having me here. Oh, it's indeed a pleasure, sir. It's indeed a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this one. Uh, we like to learn three things from our guests on this show. Uh, Professor, what is the message? Who is the messenger? And, of course, how do we use that information? To that end, sir, please share with us what you're passionate about and why. So the, the main message of the book is that the thing we call meritocracy, which is the idea that people should get ahead, based on their own accomplishments rather than, say, their parents' social class, um, while it seems like common sense, has become a catastrophe for America. Um, Meritocracy seems like common sense because it seems like it gives everybody a fair shot at success, and it seems like it produces an elite that is capable, productive, and good for society. But in fact, what's happened is that because people who have themselves succeeded through the meritocratic competition are incredibly good at training their children and invest much, much more in training their children than anybody else can afford to. Meritocracy has become a mechanism for families to pass privilege down through the generations. It's created a new kind of aristocracy, only now based on degrees rather than breeding, and it's produced an an elite that is closed in on itself and does not serve the common good, but rather serves its own class interests. All right, I want to break that down during this show and actually take some of that apart, sir. But you heard today's spotlight. What are your thoughts about data mining and its use today? Well, I think I have two thoughts about what you said. The first is I think the problem 
is even greater than you suggested. The example you gave with the five core personality traits, that's a case in which there's a human theory that the data is being used together with, but algorithmic processing and machine learning make it possible for computers to predict behavior without any persons being able to understand how it works. And that makes them incredibly powerful. True, true, true. The, the second thought I have is that this is actually, I think, most important, not even in politics and the news, but just in day-to-day -day life. When I go to Amazon, what shows up when I search for something is determined by an algorithm. When I go to Google, what shows up is determined by an algorithm. These algorithms are in effect making my choices for me in my everyday life. What brand of toothbrush to buy? What kind of screwdriver? Where to go on vacation? And these algorithms are also capable of sorting us in ways that make it possible to charge different people different amounts for the same service, take more from those who are willing to pay more, and it produces a massive shift of wealth away from ordinary people and consumers and towards big corporations and those who own them. You're absolutely right. They can manipulate the market and they can tell you, as you say, what toothpaste to buy. All right. Your book has been received very well by most, despite the fact that it challenges some so-called sacred cows. I want to get into it in a great deal of depth. But first, we should set some definitions and ideas out that we can flesh out further during the show. To that end, you argue that merit is a false promise in our culture today. Please define meritocracy for our audiences and unpack what you mean by a false promise, or I think the term you used was sham. Great. Thank you. So uh, first of all, meritocracy is the idea, as I said, that you get ahead based on your own accomplishments not something else, your race, your gender, your parents' names. Now, why do I think that this is a false promise? For two reasons. The first is we confuse meritocracy, the idea that you should get ahead based on your own accomplishments, with equality of opportunity, the idea that everybody has the same shot of success, no matter what their background is. And the reason those two are different is that if you have a world in which rich parents send their kids to the best private schools, invest in tutors, invest in coaches, invest in training of various sorts, and invest much, much more than anybody else can afford to invest. So just to give you an example, the best private schools in America spend $75,000 per pupil per year educating their students. A typical public school spends $15,000. If you have that world, and if training works, it means that the kids of rich parents, because they have more training, will actually accomplish more. And that means when you let people get ahead based on their accomplishments, what you're gonna do is have rich people get ahead and nobody else. So that's the first sense in which merit is a sham. It's an obstacle to equality of opportunity, not an engine for it. The second sense is a little subtler, but is really important, which is this. We organize our society so that certain people get more rewards than other people. If you're, for example, an investment banker, you get paid a lot more money than if you're a home health care worker. Now, the people who get to be investment bankers today are people who went to very fancy colleges and business schools and law schools and got elaborate educations. But here's the thing. 
An investment banker for every dollar of income that she earns produces less than one dollar of social product. She increases the common good by less than a dollar. Most of what she's doing is moving money around. A home care worker, on the other hand, for every dollar of income that she earns, produces $10 of social product. So we have a system in which meritocracy, so to speak, gives people what their wages are and has a fair competition for jobs, except the competition is unfair. And certain jobs, high paid jobs, get more than they produce. And other jobs, the jobs we now call essential, but are low paid, produce much more than they get. And those are two senses in which merit, as we understand it, is a sham. I love how you explain that, but now I'm going to have to play devil's advocate just, you know, in all fairness. The New York Times billed you as the meritocrat who wants to unwind the meritocracy. Indeed, the article asked a fair question with this copy, and I'll quote. It's also one coming from someone with two Yale degrees, an Oxford doctorate, and a tenured job for life inside one of the meritocracy's most rarefied bastions, close quote. How do you respond to that criticism, Professor? So I respond in two ways. Um, the first is guilty as charged, and I'm very open about this in the book. Um, I am a beneficiary of this system, and I don't deny it, and insofar as the system is unfair or wrong, much of the advantage that I have in life is unfair and wrong. The second, which I think is really important, is that no part of the argument of the book is testimony. I'm not holding myself out as um, having any particular virtue or, in fact, as knowing things other people don't know. Instead, what the book is doing is it's setting out some facts and making some arguments that connect those facts and asking the reader at the end of it, do you agree or don't you agree based on what's inside the book? And if you agree, you might well conclude that the university that I'm at is too rich and powerful and that I myself have advantages I don't deserve. And uh, in fact, that's where the book concludes also saying that elite universities are too rich and powerful, and that people who have very high salaries don't deserve their full salaries and should pay more taxes. So I would agree with the indictment, I suppose. Now, the follow-up to that may be unfair. Um, in fact, I think personally it is unfair, but the follow-up goes this way. Well, if you're passionate about that and you really believe it, are you going to give up a large part of your salary and see that these uh, home health workers uh, receive additional remuneration? Are you going to set an example? So, first of all, um, in some ways I, I, I do and maybe I should do more. Um, I'm not particularly virtuous, I suppose. But the deeper point is that this is a book about structures. And one thing that I should do and that I do with as much energy as I can muster is argue for political reforms that will unwind inequality, make us a fairer, more inclusive, more democratic society. 
and reduce the outsized influence that the institutions I'm associated with and people like me have in our culture and our politics. And so in that sense, I absolutely do, as it were, put my money where my mouth is or put my energies where my arguments lead, which is to push for structural reforms. Because one of the lessons of the book is that if we want a better society, we have to have better economic, institutional, cultural, and political structures. We have to have a government that is fairer, laws that are juster, more fair taxation, an education system that doesn't favor elites and educates more people more equally, a labor market that gives higher wages to jobs that now don't get paid as much and reduces the wages of certain elite jobs today. And those are things that I always argue for, agitate for, politic for, uh, with all the energy that I have. Well, for what it's worth, I found nothing maudlin in your book or your work or in my background uh, search of who you are. Indeed, I, I believe that what you just said, you said was sincerest of beliefs. Okay, we've got a break coming up, Professor. When we come back, I, I want to, you know, I want you to explain to us how we ever became a meritocratic society. We're speaking with Professor Daniel Markovitz about his work and book, the meritocracy trap. Uh, you know, I, I said earlier uh, in this hour, this is a scary read, and it is, because it reveals a side of our lives that we probably have been ignorant to and we shouldn't be. And if, if you're an agent of change, awareness is the most important element that you can obtain in order to do those or to make this country a better place to live in. You can learn more about our guest in his book by visiting The Meritocracy Trap. One word, TheMeritocracyTrap.com. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to InnerTalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Daniel Markovitz about his work and book, The Meritocracy Trap. You can learn more about our guest in his book by visiting his website, 
TheMeritocracyTrap.com. One word, TheMeritocracyTrap.com. All right, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology, as you know by now, is an avocation of mine. It's also a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Now, your chosen music professor is Bob Dylan's Ballad of a Thin Man. So please tell us, why is this music important to you? And more importantly, how does it inform us about who you are? Well, I chose that when you asked me for for this show, um, because I feel like around the the world, but certainly in America today, something is happening, and we just don't actually know quite what it is. Um, you know, there's an enormous amount of partisan anger, general political anger, mistrust of institutions, mistrust of elites, despair in the populace, you know, um, we're, we're facing rising mortality rates in this country right now, falling life expectancy. And just to, to be clear about this, it is literally true, true that in all of human experience, it's never happened that a society has had falling life expectancy without either a famine, a war, a plague, an economic catastrophe. Well, we now have a plague here, but we had the falling life expectancy before the plague. And it was inexplicable why it should happen. And the answer, I think, is that we're in the middle of a fundamental restructuring of our economic, cultural, and political life that is favoring a very narrow elite that has a very particular, extreme, intensive form of education that does labor that no one else is either able or allowed to do and that excludes more and more people from meaningful advantage and participation and that all of these phenomena the increased mortality which is overwhelmingly due to alcoholism drug addiction suicide the political anger the populism the mistrust of institutions and elites are all caused by this concentration of privilege in what I call the meritocratic elite or the superordinate worker. But we as a culture haven't come to recognize that yet. So I, you know, why Bob Dylan? Because I think he has a way of capturing um, the way the world is and the way people feel about the world in an extremely spare, direct form. Um, but why this song? Uh, because as he says, something is happening, we just don't know what it is. I love the thought you put into that, uh, Professor. It it takes a lot of courage for someone like yourself to step out there and speak to his colleagues and, and other elites. Forgive me, I don't mean to impugn you when I use that word. Um, and, and many would think I was. Um, <laughs> How how is your message received by your colleagues? Well, let, let me let me say first of all, um, you know, in a way, my, part of my response is the flip side of my response to your early question about um, sort of what's wrong with me, why aren't I acting on on this? Um, I also think that it actually doesn't take a whole lot of courage for someone in my position to do this, 
because I'm a tenured professor. Nobody can take away my livelihood. Um, nobody can take away my position. And so it, in some sense, takes no guts at all to say anything. Um, so I, I want to claim neither virtue nor vice that's unusual. <laughs> I'm just a guy. You know, I'm doing my job trying to understand what's going on. Um, now, how do people react? I actually think people mostly were not particularly hostile, people in, in the elite. There were some people who reacted very hostily. Um, these were generally, in my experience, people who themselves had benefited from the meritocracy and who had benefited in ways that were admirable. So people from traditionally excluded groups, um, people who, you know, were had a hard time getting into Harvard in the 60s because of the Jewish quota or something like that, um, and had worked their way to the top through their own effort and talent, and were really understandably skeptical of an argument that says that a system that rewards people for hard work and talent is a bad system, um, because the old system was one that rewarded people for being white, male, Protestant, born to an old family, and that's a worse system. So there was some hostility there, but mostly people inside the elite, I think, understand that the system that we have is deeply unfair, deeply destructive of our culture and our social cohesion. And I think that they're not, you know, people don't have to buy my diagnosis of exactly how this worked, but they're grasping, they're groping for an explanation. Uh, because if you have an explanation, you can start thinking what to do about it. But until you have an explanation, all you have is a sense of foreboding. Um, so mostly, I think people reacted inside the elite by saying, huh, well, maybe this is right. And if it is right, now we can start thinking about what to do. All right, sir. I promise you when we came back from the break, I was just simply going to ask you, how do we ever become a, a meritocratic society? So, so I gave a little bit of a, of a hint at that in our last back and forth, which is that after the Second World War, we were partly engaged in international competition with communism. We were partly responding to the fact that lots of groups that had historically been excluded had fought bravely and valiantly alongside more traditionally aristocratic Americans in the war effort. And it became clear to a subset of America's then leaders that the old system in which your family name and your breeding and how long your people had been there and whether you were white or a person of color, whether you were Protestant or Catholic or Jewish, not to mention Hindu or Muslim, determined your access to elite institutions, that that kind of exclusion was unfair, whether you were male versus female, that that kind of exclusion was unfair. And meritocracy was thought of by um, sincere, good-willed reformers as a way of opening up the old elite because no group has a monopoly on virtue or talent or hard work. And so when people began to let people into places like Harvard or Yale or Princeton, based on their own accomplishments, what they found is they got a much more diverse, much more energetic, much fairer, and much more representative elite. What they didn't count on is that the success of their system would build a new caste, namely the meritocrats, who knew how to teach their kids 
and knew how to beat the system at its own game. And so they didn't count on the idea that the system would become self-perpetuating in a way that became unfair, even though it was invented as a form of fairness and inclusiveness. All right. So I've got two sons. Uh, They both attended uh, one of the top computer science schools in the world. I think today it's rated number two, but at any rate, they both got excellent jobs coming straight out of the university. High six-figure incomes to start. They both worked very hard, and they both went to private Catholic high schools. So dad and mom laid out a lot of money to get them through their schooling. And it paid off. Their hard work paid off. That's merit. What's wrong with that? Are you trying to tell us that there's something inherently wrong with a merit-oriented society? So I want to be very careful about this. Um, I'm not trying to tell anybody that there's something personally wrong with this. No, I I know that. You don't need to. Okay, go no, ahead. Just, I'm sorry. I don't just mean you as a parent. I mean, you know, your sons and, and my students at Yale Law School who are overwhelmingly, incredibly hardworking, incredibly sincere um, and incredibly talented. And uh, it's not easy to do what they do. And it, it, they're not at fault for doing it. Um, at the same time, here are two things I think that are not good about this system. One is it's really hard to break in if you don't have the good fortune to have parents like your sons did. Um, You know, training and education works. And what elite parents do in America today is from birth or just after birth, they start investing in their kids' education. They get music lessons and they get specialist child minders, and then they send their kids to preschool. Almost all rich kids go to preschool. Most non-rich kids don't go to preschool. They then send their kids to a fancy elementary school where there are maybe five or six kids per teacher. And there are specialist teachers who teach various skills. And then they go to a a private high school, and then they go to a a college, and all that costs money. And um, that money is spent not haphazardly, but with an intense effort to cram as much learning into kids as possible. And that means that if you don't have the benefit of that, um, if you're born poor in America, or even if you're just born middle class, it's gonna be very, very hard to compete with kids who have all those advantages. And so when we measure people meritocratically at 18 or 22 or 25, lo and behold, there are more kids at Harvard whose parents come from the richest 1% of the income distribution than from the bottom half. And that's true at Yale too, and it's true at Princeton too. Um, So that's unfair. That's uh, excluding a bunch of people uh, for no fault of their own. And uh, even worse, because we call this meritocracy, the people who are then excluded are told that they don't measure up rather than that they didn't have advantages. The other problem with it is even if you are one of these lucky people who gets all this investment, it's not actually a whole lot of fun to be one of these kids. You're working all the time. You're constantly being coached and taught and prodded. And then you're getting tested and measured. And there's the constant fear that you won't measure up. 
and then you get to college and you have to do really well to get to graduate school or professional school and then you get a job and the job is 80 hours a week. And then of course you have kids and you worry about whether you're gonna be able to get your kids to run the same gauntlet that you've run. So even inside the elite, this system makes people wealthy, but it doesn't make them well. And so it serves nobody's human interests. So, so those are the kinds of things I think that are wrong with it. And notice something about this. All of what I've just said could be true, even though everybody in the system is behaving honorably. How do you, how do you see us changing that? Because, I mean, we homeschooled our sons until they were fifth, sixth grade, one five, fifth grade, the other sixth grade. Um, and, and I'm a firm believer in homeschooling. Uh, but you set that aside. How how do you see changing this? Because, I, I, I mean, I can remember one of my sons uh, got into a school and he brought me the, the uh, information and I'm not going to name the school and and it my wife and I looked at it and this this school was going to cost us a half a million dollars for him to get his bachelor's degree and and dad just simply said no there's no way it's not going to do that and 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 yet there are lots of people that do this so the these institutions you're talking about it's just not hard to get into them it's extremely expensive only the very wealthy can afford to put their children in those schools or buy them into schools like some of the scandals lately. So how do you see changing this? I don't see Harvard or Yale lowering tuitions or going out looking for, you know, students that uh, don't come from elite families who can contribute to the school as alumni, etc. I mean, it seems to be a self-perpetuating, vicious circle. Well, I think this is where we need collective action, democratic politics and policy, government policy, rather than private virtue. Um, what do I mean by that? So here's something interesting about the United States. Because we have local funding of public schools, um, not just local control, but local funding, we are extremely rare. I think only one of three among the 25 or 30 richest countries in the world where the public system spends more money per child on educating rich kids than poor kids. Because you would think that the fair thing to do is if you have the disadvantage that your parents aren't rich, schools should spend a little bit more money on you. There should be better student-teacher ratios in schools that have poorer student bodies than schools that have richer student bodies to kind of equalize for this unfair disadvantage that you have. But we do the reverse. Our public schools spend much, much more money on rich kids than on poor kids. And our private schools, as I said at the top of the hour, spend five times as much on rich kids as on middle class kids. So one thing we can do is have a massive reallocation of education investment in middle class kids. Take money away from the richest schools, give it to middle class and working class schools. Right now, rich schools, rich private schools are organized as charities, which means that they're tax exempt. There's no reason they should be tax exempt if all their students are rich. It's not a public charity, it's a rich person's club. The same thing is true for elite universities. 
the richest university in the world is Harvard, but the richest university per student in the world is Princeton because Princeton has fewer students. Princeton's tax exemption amounts to a public subsidy of $100,000 per Princeton student per year, somebody recently calculated. That is 40 times as much as the state of New Jersey gives to the local community college. At the same time, Princeton has more kids from the richest 1% than from the bottom half. So we should reallocate expenditures, including public expenditures on education, away from rich kids and towards middle class and working class kids. And that would make a huge difference to who gets ahead. It would make a huge difference to how many people get educated. We get many more people into college that way. We'd also remake our labor market so there'd be more jobs for people that way. So everybody would win, actually. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about education here, and I think that's that's very important because it, it there's more than a handful of experts out there that are convinced our educational system uh, today um, it, it does as much, how shall I put this, does as much in with regard to socializing, uh, providing the acceptable thinking as it does in actually educating a skill or a talent. Would you accept that as being potentially possible, Professor? So uh, it's, it's cer- I certainly agree that our education system socializes people and it also produces networks and it produces what sociologists call social capital as a way of advantaging elites. Um, I am unusual, just sort of to be clear to your audience, for people on the left uh, who are critical of inequality, that I also think much of what our education system does is actually give people skills. Um, It just gives people unequal skills, and it gives people skills that are valuable only in an unequal world. So I'm not in favor of it, but I do think it has a kind of economic rationality. And if we want to reform it effectively, we have to look that economic rationality in the face. Um, And in that sense, many people on the left disagree with me and think I give it too much credit. All right. Let me ask you this. There are many forms of inequality, and and you cover them, and we're not going to have time to get through all of them. But tell us about the relative good... uh, or the nature of relative good, and by that I mean, say, the cost of living in Seattle versus St. Clair Shores, and what, in your opinion, is how we sort this relative cost of living impact out in our country? So I think that's an incredibly complicated question, Um, and it's complicated for the following reason. First of all, just on a descriptive level, certain things are much more expensive in certain cities where rich people tend to congregate, than other things. So housing is the big example. Housing in Seattle or San Francisco or Manhattan is much, much more expensive than housing in Dayton or Champaign-Urbana or Oxford, Mississippi. Um, So in that sense, uh, there's that kind of, of relative inequality. On the other hand, other things are cheaper in big cities. Um, Certain of the luxury goods that rich people like are actually cheaper, but also certain forms of social capital formation, getting access to museums, getting access to the cultural language of the elite is a lot cheaper in big cities. 
And that means that the kids of people who grow up in those big cities get that access for free, as it were, whereas everybody else has to fight and pay for it. Finally, of course, wages are much, much higher in the big cities. And one thing that's happened, and this is, I think, the most important of these effects, is that because of the ways in which a high-tech information economy combines workers, it turns out that the incentive to segregate rich and well-educated or elaborately educated people in their own bubbles in certain cities have never been greater. And so these cities have developed into sort of islands of wealth um, surrounded by other parts of the country which are cheaper, but also have much, much lower wages and nothing like the density of elites in them. And that also produces uh, an isolated elite that has its own sense of its own interests, serves its own interests rather than the general interest, and is not connected to the rest of the country in the way in which in a well-functioning democracy, the elite should be. All right, one last question, if you can get it in here. Uh, quote, conventional views about how to cure economic inequality only compound the political problem, close quote. You wrote, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that um, our conventional sense is that what we need to do is focus on poverty relief and what we need to do is focus on capitalists. Whereas, I'm going to cut you off right there, Professor, and tell everybody that they need to read your book because we're about out of time. But I want you to take 30 seconds and tell everyone how they can learn more about your work, uh, your blog activity, appearances, or any other such thing, please. Well, well, thank you for that. Um, thank you, first of all, for having me on. Thanks to everybody for listening. Probably the best way to find me is just on Twitter, at uh, DS Markovitz. Um, I tweet ideas. I made a decision not to tweet about my own work, but I do tweet about a lot of other people's work, and it's great work. Um, so I encourage people to, to follow the people that I mentioned there. So thank you very, very much again. It's been a real pleasure being on. Oh, it's, it's indeed been our pleasure. We're going to have to bring you back because I've got at least two dozen more questions. In the betwixt time, we left everybody hanging on an important one, but go get the book. Meritocracy Trap, Daniel Markovitz. You can get it online today. I'm going to tell you, you want to read this book. I want to thank you, sir, for sharing your work and experience with us, and I wish you the best in your endeavors to come. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. And remember this, until next time, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.